on the next portion of the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And there we read, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Less than holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when a thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, God and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let us sing together from hymn 53, which stands as 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way it goes is that we are all very familiar with the opening chapters of Scripture. You know, we, we refer to it often, we also end up talking about it, when we want to defend six-day creation over against the year revolution. But we don't really spend that much time, you could say, thinking and talking about the end of Scripture. It's a surprise, because of course, the beginning of Scripture, well, tells you the beginning of the story of salvation, you also expect us to talk a lot about the end of the story, how it all comes to its completion. If anything, that should have more of our attention. The past is past. We're looking forward to the great future. So we're going to pay attention this morning to the passage from nearly the end of Holy Scripture. Now, in reference to Genesis and the creation account, we have to, of course, keep in mind that when we think of Genesis, well, that describes what happened, and so it is written as history, as narrative of what took place. But Revelation speaks of, in the sense of, of the present, but it also, especially, you can say, is looking towards the future. 
And we know this because John, we are told, saw many visions of what was to come. And we're told explicitly a few times in the book of Revelation that these words are prophecy. Already you see it in chapter 1, verse 3, again near the end, chapter 22, verse 18. And now one of the principles of interpreting prophecy is that it should not be read as history, even if it speaks about what is to come in history. Well, prophecy, prophecy is its own kind of biblical literature. And prophecy often will use images, metaphors, symbolism. And you also have to keep in mind when you read prophecies, you know, as compared to narrative, well, the one story kind of follows the other. But prophecy, well, there can be successive prophecies, but it doesn't mean that they refer to successive events. They can be prophecies that refer to the same event, but they just look at it from a different way, or they bring out different aspects. And we see this also in the book of Revelation, as it goes to what has been described several cycles, describing what happens between Christ coming in the flesh and his coming again in glory. When you read through Revelation several times, you think, here we are, at the end, Judgment Day. And then it starts all over again. In that respect, you know, it's a bit confusing, but the idea of cycles already is helpful. Going out of the game, you can even compare it to some of those books. Maybe the older generation remembers that. Younger generation growing up on, on the internet and stuff like that might not be familiar with it, but those books where you had different layers. So you put down one layer, you begin to see part of the picture, you put down another layer, the picture intensifies, and you put down a number of layers, and only when all the layers are down, then you see the complete picture. But you have to go through that particular process. Maybe people still have those kind of books, and they understand all the more, but also I'm referring to here. Well, you can also picture Revelation that way. Just laying down layers, and so coming to a better, complete, composite picture. And when we keep this in mind for our text for this morning, we can see that this, we can say, is, is kind of the final layer completing the picture of the time between Christ's coming in humility, the birth of Bethlehem, and his coming in glory. And as, as that final layer is put down, it really brings up very clearly a theme that takes us right back to the very beginning of Scripture, Genesis 3, verse 15, which talks about the enmity between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. And this vision, like the other visions, was given to encourage the church. Back then, you know, it seemed so small, it was so insignificant, it was often persecuted. It was given back then to encourage the church, it also encourages the church today. And therefore I proclaim to you this morning, the vision of the 1,000 year reign, a final survey of the New Testament age to encourage the church. And we are encouraged as we read of the dragon bound, released, and crushed. The vision of the 1,000 year reign, the final survey of the New Testament age to encourage the church. So we start our first point, then I repeat what was said about that, that kind of layered approach. Because our text does not tell us what happened next after the vision in chapter 19 about rider on a horse, the Lord of the Lord of the Kings, the beast, and the kings of the earth, and the false prophet, 
who are all cast into the lake of fire by the rider on the white horse. No. Our text tells us what John saw next. So don't think sequence. No, this is what John saw next. And in this vision, John saw who ultimately was behind the beast, the kings, and the false prophets. Namely, it was the dragon. You, say, you can say that here, we, as the scripture completes, we get the ultimate behind the scenes of history. Look, one of those privileges we have as God's children. There are those times when God thinks it's behind the curtain of what happens in this world. So this is what really going on. And here we have one of those scenarios. So, as we think of that, so here another layer is put down. We kind of go back also to stuff that has been covered before. But here then is kind of again a rewind to the to the whole of the story that you could say that began with the ministry. So what is described here can be compared to what is also talked about in Revelation 12, where we read about the dragon being cast down to earth after the child had been snatched from the grip of the dragon and taken safely into heaven. So Satan cast down. Or we think of what the Lord Jesus said during his ministry in Luke chapter 10, where he spoke about Satan falling from heaven. Matthew 12, where the Lord, who was accused of working by the power of the Elzebul, talks about the Elzebul being bound. Well, you see, the, the ministry of Christ, climaxing in his death on the cross, disarmed the rulers and authorities and powers. That's where the binding took place. Express, for example, in Colossians chapter 2, that at Christ at the cross disarmed all those powers. And here that is put in terms of the angel binding the dragon, that ancient serpent, and all the names are given for him. You know, the devil, Satan, everything you can imagine that has been revealed in Scripture about this arch enemy of God and his people. And as we hear many of the names of this ancient enemy piled on top of each other, Names that bring out his fierce character, his deceitful ways. This third last chapter of Scripture takes us back to the third chapter of Scripture. This passage we also refer to, especially also, as we mentioned, the theme verse of the Bible. We all know that, the theme verse of the Bible, where the Lord says, I will put enmity between the woman and her offspring, and the serpent talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ there in the hope that really lays out how the scripture is going to be fulfilled because the scripture is a fulfillment of that promise of the one who is going to defeat the serpent. Now, that enmity, that antithesis, we have also learned that particular term over time, the antithesis, the contrast between the two kingdoms, that has been the background story of the Bible all along. Yes, we read all kind of things in the foreground stories. Sinful people, wars going on, all kinds of disasters, but there was always a background story, and that began back there in Genesis 3, verse 15. And, and you can say in the foreground story, as it begins to develop, that all the promises being fulfilled, that the promise of the, the child eventually fulfilled in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the foreground story, you can say the death of Jesus Christ is the midpoint of that story. But it has to be understood in light of the background story, what is going on throughout history, what is driving history to its ultimate destination. 
And so the vision of Satan being bound shows us then the background story and the effect that Christ's death had on Satan. There are a number of things to note so that we may also be encouraged. First we can note, we are told that Satan was bound for 1,000 years. Now this particular phrase, we could go on a wild tangent about the meaning of the 1,000 years. You know, as the Latin word for thousand is millennium, and this has led to all kinds of discussions about the millennium, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism. And if you were to do a search on the internet, you would find so many books written about this particular topic, trying to figure out exactly when this 1,000-year period is and how to explain it, how to understand it. But then... We find our way when we keep in mind what was said at the beginning, that Revelation is a book of visions, of prophecy. And you go in the wrong direction. You make big mistakes when you read prophecy as history. And many of those theories about millennialism, well, they, they, run a lot, they, they, they run stuck because they start reading prophecy as history. You can't do that. It's prophecy. Prophecy is, is filled with symbolism. Also, when it comes to the numbers. Now, to understand these numbers, now what, what is the symbolism? What is going on over here? Well, what we should do then, we always should do when we're busy with Scripture, compare Scripture to Scripture. Don't, don't let your imagination go wild. Just start thinking about Scripture. Where else do we read, for example, about 1,000 years? You will find in many places. You will find, for example, Psalm 90 which is quoted also by Peter, interestingly, when he talks about this time period that we're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, on Psalm 90 it says a thousand years is like one day with the Lord, one day is a thousand years to indicate, well, it, it's, the Lord does not know time like we know time. The Lord is above time, because time is really a part of His creation. But then, when we see that, also that how it is used there, we can say when it comes to 1,000 years, but for us, 1,000 years is a very long time. None of us is even close to that. To go back in the early generations, yes, you know, some of those people became almost a thousand, but, but for us, a thousand years, well, that's a lot of lifetimes. But at the same time, while it is a very long time, it's also a very definite time. It wasn't left open ended, no, there is also a beginning and there is an end. And then, then we can say that this, this refers to the time period between Christ's coming in the flesh and his coming in glory. It's a very long period, but it's also a very definite period. So that's encouraging. It's a long period, but a very definite period. And then we are further encouraged, as we learn, by what Satan cannot do in this period, and what Christ and the saints can do. Now, as to what Satan cannot do, we are told he cannot deceive the nations any longer. And to understand this, we have to keep in mind that ever since the fall into sin, you can say the whole world, yes, it's under the rule of Satan. He, he is the prince of this world, the prince of the darkness. The Lord Jesus also refers to him that way, as, as the ruler of this world. Now, in this spiritually dark world under the rule of Satan, you know, God says, no, I'm not going to let Satan have the world. I'm going to win it back. 
not, of course, he preserved his promise to Noah and the flood, and Abraham apart. You say that, that Abraham, God did with Abraham, and also the people of Israel. That we can almost picture like God saying, Look, I'm going to show to you that I've already conquered the world because I'm going to put a tiny little light in Israel and Canaan. So Israel was kind of a nightlight through the dark period that and Satan seemed to rule in the world. The whole world was in a period of darkness, unbelief. But they're little light. Not what times the people that were called to be the light, they didn't get the flicker, almost were extinguished. But the Lord preserved that light because he said he was going indeed to fulfill his promise, setting Abraham and his descendants apart. And in that particular that whole period of time, yeah, the gospel didn't really go beyond the people of Israel. They were set apart, they were isolated in order to eventually be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Well, the rest of the world, they exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creatures. They began to worship the sun and the moon and all kinds of animals and things like that. But you see, when Christ came, that was that also when he said, well, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is present in him. And by his death, yes, by his death, he broke the power of Satan. And it became possible what had been impossible for all those centuries leading up to that moment, namely, to let the gospel go to the nations. You see, Satan lost his stranglehold on the nations. The light would no longer be confined to a tiny little spot there in the Middle East. The light was going to spread throughout the whole world. Now, we should know that Satan's power to deceive the nations does not mean he lost all influence. In other parts of Scripture, Paul, for example, he tells the Ephesians to put on the armor of God so they can withstand the fiery darts of the devil. Peter warns, Peter 5 verse 8, that the devil is going around like a roaring lion looking for victims to devour. Now, this, this doesn't have to be seen as contradictory, but more as complementary. You know, we can compare it to what we hear sometimes about prisoners or criminals who have been imprisoned. And they have been bound. But somehow, they managed to exert much influence while in prison. And so Satan may be in prison. He may not be able to do as he did before, holding all the nations under his power, but he still kind of directs from prison, you could say, his age, his agents, like the beast of the earth, the beast of the sea, the false prophets, as well as many kings and rulers. But what he has lost is his ability to unite the nations of the world in their unbelief. For as the gospel goes out, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And so, if you think of what happened after Pentecost, there, there it began in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then by the time the book of Acts finishes, the gospel already is being preached in Rome. And it has continued to spread. Of course, it continued to be pushed back. Some nations proved to be particularly tough nuts to grab, you could say. 
they wound up Dutch ancestry. If you look at their own history, you say, well, our forefathers, they were really tough customers. It took well into the seventh century before the gospel finally made inroads. Well, up to that point, you can say after the Rhine rivers, they're having people who were Christians, but not more than that. No, those Dutch people resisted the gospel, but the Lord broke through them too, like he has broken through many other people. Satan could not hold on to them. He was bucked. Eventually the gospel spread. It continues to spread. You think also today how it goes. You know, it goes to China, for example. And even though the government there is trying to oppress it, they cannot suppress the Christians. Just more people believe all the time. Even though there's all these efforts to, to suppress it, no, it won't succeed. Now the triumphant march of the gospel through the world is reinforced by what we read in verses 4 to 10. We speak of Christ and the saints who have died. Some we are told they died as martyrs, while others, they died normal deaths, but, but they had remained faithful. They had, had faced challenges and persecutions, but they had not worshipped the beast or its image. You know, we think of, of Daniel and his friends. We can gather that eventually they would have died, you could say, a normal death, but they were tempted time and again. They were, they were threatened if they did not worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar, but they persevered. So what it comes down to here is that we kind of learn something about what the believers do and what we describe as the intermediate state, that is, between death and resurrection. And we can speak that way because we are told that John saw their souls, so he sees these who, who are with the Lord in the heavens. They are, you could say, in their heavenly home. And, and elsewhere in Scripture, in Revelation also, they are pictured as, as praying, how long before you avenge the blood of the saints? And here they are shown ruling with Christ. Again, the background story. We don't, we don't see this in the foreground. This is the background story. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because even we here on earth, in a sense, can be said to rule with, reign with Christ. The the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. He says, well, we died with him, we rose with him. And now we sit with him in heavenly places, where our head is, where Christ is, we are. But here, here the focus seems to be on, on those who are with the Lord in heavenly glory. They, they share in the first resurrection, which points to being raised from spiritual death, while the second resurrection, that would point to the resurrection of the body. Now again, as it speaks about reigning, the nature of reigning is that it will not always be easy. Because there continue to be the attacks by Satan's agents, as we talked about already. But the overall picture is that of the advance of the gospel through the world because Satan is bound. He no longer has that same grip on all the nations which he had for so many centuries. Now as we read this, keep in mind also the situation of the first hearers of these visions. You know, at that time in history, the church was just a tiny, tiny, insignificant minority. If you think of the massive Roman Empire, well, Rome, for one thing, they kind of thought Christians, they were at first kind of a Jewish sect. But number-wise, they, they were far less than the Jews. You know, estimates are maybe 10,000 Christians by the end of the first century. Many in a huge empire like that. Many were dying martyrs' deaths, even though the gospel said Christ is king and he's going to, to rule over all things. So, it's discouraging. You know, you think, hey, I, I embrace the king of the world. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. And as we think also, for example, among the Thessalonians, they said, but, but what's going on? Jesus hasn't come back yet, and some of our members are dying already. Those early believers needed a lot of encouragement. So, what does the Lord do in this final book of Scripture, here also in his final chapters? He says, look behind the scenes. This is what's really going on. Yes, you, you see the foreground picture. Doesn't look so great. Doesn't look very encouraging. But this is the background picture. Christ is ruling. And this is encouraging for us today as well. And we can say in our country, our days, the foreground picture is not look very encouraging. Did we say, well, Canada used to be a Christian nation, or they should not Christian nation, at least Christian morality, Christian principles prevailed. It's just disappearing, it's just like evaporating as fast as you can imagine. And that Christian influence and significance is just decreasing in our country. But then we have to keep in mind, in mind the background story. Yes, God is in control, Jesus is in control, Satan is bound. The gospel is still spreading, even in our country. And you get your mind the background story. Satan is bound. The gospel is spreading. And not in our country, other parts of the world. Now that encouraging message continues. But we also turn to our second point, where we consider Satan released. Now as we look at what happened when Satan was released, that does not sound too encouraging at first. Because no sooner is he released and he resumes where he left off, deceiving the nations, stirring them all up to unite in their opposition to the church, which is portrayed as the camp of the saints and the beloved city. You know, the camp of the saints, if you think of the church traveling through the wilderness, you think they are a pilgrim community traveling towards the new heaven and new earth. Of the city, that's a reminder of really also the church. Jerusalem represents the church. So, as you read that, you know, you could say, when people are sent to prison, they are supposed to have a lot of time to think about their criminal activity and they're supposed to rehabilitate and they're supposed to come out purified to some degree. Well, not for Satan. He may have been bound for a thousand years, but a thousand years did not lead to his rehabilitation or repentance. Nope. He is still filled with hatred against God and his people. And the moment he can get out again, he is back to what he was doing before. But you could say a new intensity. But I mean, we of him gathering the nations at the four corners of the earth, described as Gog and Magog, echoes what we find in Ezekiel 38 and 39, which also describes a, a mass attack on the people of God after the return to the land from the exile. And what is described here, you could say, is also described to some extent in Revelation 16, verse 12 to 16, about the seventh bowl of wrath, and how the nations assemble at a place in Hebrew called Armageddon, as well as what is described in a previous passage we read together about the beasts and the kings gathering together. So we said this layer is being put out. So what's new in this layer? Well, this layer brings out, well, the, those, so all the enemies again of God's church, this layer brings out the ultimate enemy who has always been busy stirring up people to oppose God and his people. 
And we said this is encouraging. Well, how can this be encouraging? Even more than we are told that they, they were numbered, the numbers were like the sand of the sea. It's a number of them. Well, it comes down to what we're told in First Street, maybe, that it will be for a little while. Notice that contrast here to the thousand-year period of being bound, speaking of a little while, means don't even put it in terms of years or even days. We are reminded here of our Lord's words in Matthew 23 about the day of desolation and tribulation being cut short. For if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So what's new in this layer of visions then is that Satan, the ancient enemy, is shown to be behind the final assault on God's church. But this final assault will be only for a little while. It will only be enough time to stir up the nations. And they, yes, it is portrayed for us, they will come to the point of marching up and surrounding the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But they will never, so to speak, be able even to fire the first shot. That takes us to our last point. Satan crushed. Now the third point was phrased in terms of Satan being crushed because of the promise in Genesis 15. The serpent would bruise the woman's offspring's heel, while the offspring would bruise his head. The heel he can recover from. The head wound is failed. And the bruising of the heel took place when Satan stirred up the Jewish leaders and the people to demand Jesus' crucifixion. He was bruised, and yet that kind of evil led to his death. But ironically, by stirring up the demand for crucifixion, if you think of the consequence, in doing that, Satan actually signed his own death warrant. Because the death of Christ was his victory, as was mentioned earlier. And it set the stage for what we see here, the crushing, which is described in our text. Now that's for this question. There is first the crushing of all the forces conspiring against the church. For we are told that fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You know, it reminds us of what happened to those soldiers that were sent to capture Elijah. They just consumed like that. God can do that. He can destroy the enemies of his children. Makes you think of Solomon and Gomorrah. God in his wrath turned those cities upside down. Or we think of the previous visions. This is not new, this destruction of these enemies. What is new here is the crushing of Satan, the one who had been stirring up all these people behind the scenes. He never gets the chance to order to shoot. For he will join the beasts, the false prophets, the kings of the earth, and their armies in the lake of fire. Here we have a picture of hell. Get to any of the scriptures in scripture, or the descriptions in the scripture, but we have that here, a description of hell, a place of eternal torment that comes up repeatedly in the book of Revelation. So it's not the case that the leader of all the forces of wickedness will escape to fight another day to gather more forces to go at it again. No, this time his defeat is final. He could be released from the pit, but not from this place of destruction. This is the place of eternal suffering. 
here then is the ultimate encouragement. As we see the story of salvation that began, you can say, in Genesis 3.15, the promise of the offspring of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, come to a proper conclusion. There we see God's kingdom ready to be fully established. A kingdom that began to come in the person of Jesus Christ, but that kingdom is despite the persistent attacks, yes, it will prevail. And the prince of darkness will face his proper punishment for his rebellion against God and all the misery he has caused on the earth. But it may have been released from being in the bottomless pit, we said, but not from the lake of fire. So what we see then, brothers and sisters, is that the third last chapter of the Bible shows us the fulfillment of what was promised in the third chapter of the Bible. The Bible is one story in the end, one story of the gospel of salvation. It began with the coming of our Lord Jesus in human flesh. It will be completed after the final assault by Satan, which will only lead to his final destruction. And this is the background story. We must always keep in mind as we live in the foreground story. But a foreground story, we have said already, can be so discouraging. But the background story, though, gives us proper perspective. It keeps us from, from just kind of collapsing into spiritual nervousness, getting the spiritual panic button, or also from drifting into spiritual speculation. But no. it equips us to be able to go on in this life as confident Christians. Because we know Christ rules. And as Satan events will be released, it will be short. And Christ's crushing of Satan will be firm, final, and forever. And to be sure, all this is shown to us in the vision of his all prophecy. And that means we have to embrace it in faith. For it is only in faith that we can confidently, confidently face the future. Amen.